Thank you for downloading this episode of our podcast. Hi, and welcome to the podcast for Solomon Staircase Masonic Lodge number 357, where we talk about all things related with Freemasonry, including hermetic teachings, philosophy, reason, spirituality, and much more. We're located in Buena Park, Southern California. Tune in as we continue to update our podcast with informative talks and articles for Masons worldwide and those who would like to inquire within. So now we'll finish up the article on anti-Masonry and Masonry, the genesis of protest. So as you remember, we left off and discussing the trials against the Masons after the Morgan and Miller affairs. The three councils complained of obstructions encountered in securing witnesses or testimony because so many stratagems had been resorted to to frustrate inquiry. Birdseye recommended changing the laws which allowed witnesses not to testify if they might incriminate themselves. Spencer, too, had emphasized Masonic obstructionism. Although he eventually became an anti-Mason, he was not when he presented his report. He began as counsel wanting to punish the guilty quickly to undercut anti-Masonry. His sincerity, however, brought him into conflict with the uncooperative state administration. After the legislature cut in half his funds to pay witnesses' expenses, he resigned, charging Governor Throop with divulging prosecution information to lawyers to defending Masons. The indictment of Masonic obstructionism dominated Spencer's report in January 1830. Difficulties which never occurred in any other prosecution have been met at every step. Witnesses had been hidden, sent off to Canada, bribed, and warned of due process about to be served. One fugitive had been arrested but decoyed from custody. These occurrences have been so numerous and various as to forbid the belief that there were the result of individual effort alone, and they have evinced the concert of so many agents as to indicate an extensive combination to screen from punishment those charged with participation in the offense upon William Morgan. The councils and Stone believed in the murder of Morgan. Spencer said that all available information persuaded him that Morgan's death, of which little doubt is generally entertained, was not contemplated until after he was brought back from Canada. Birdseye, who filed the final report after the last trials, said that new testimony should satisfy the public mind as to the ultimate fate of Morgan, that he was taken into the Niagara River at night, about the 19th of September, and there sunk. Yet the evidence, although sufficient for all purposes of human belief, is not sufficient to establish with legal certainty and according to a judge cases, the murder of Morgan. While officials scrupulously treated the evidence, and while many historians have doubted Morgan's murder, by early 1827, belief in his death by Masons had spread throughout western New York. In March, a Rochester editor visiting Albany reported that he heard nothing talked of in the stages and barrooms but Morgan. His fate was alarming the whole country, and one popular saying held that there was a good road to Fort Niagara, but none back. In the court of public opinion, evidence suggesting murder had burgeoned far more rapidly than in official courts, and reasonable men at the time regarding it as convincing. After September 1826, also, reasonable men could believe that Masons had too much influence over the administration of justice. In fact, Many judges, prosecutors, lawyers, and other officials, including at least three sheriffs of the five counties holding trials, were Masons. Many of these men discharged their duties impartially. Some, however, stalled or ignored their duties, 
while others manipulated and perverted the law to protect the guilty brethren or themselves. As a result, the indignation of the protesters grew, and with it their hostility to masonry. The belief in a systemic corruption of justice to cover up Morgan's murder and shield the guilty was far from fantastic. In Genesee County, bills of indictment came down from the October term of the general sessions of the peace. Four men were accused in relation to the false imprisonment of Miller, although three were convicted six months later and given light sentences, one year, six months, and three months, the man acquitted was one of the county's most prominent, Leroy, founder, and former state legislator, James Ganson. A man of standing, of wealth, of influence, according to Stone, he was known and proved to have been the mainspring of the expedition against Miller. While those who acted a subordinate part were convicted, Stone found no improper practices in this trial, but Ganson's acquittal excited great suspicion. Two of the four presiding county judges were Masons, as were part of the jury, and one of them appeared as a witness for the defense. Substantiating the suspicions of nascent anti-Masons, Morgan cases dragged on through five terms of the general sessions and six terms of the court of Oyer and Terminer in Genesee County between 1826 and April 1830. Masons were allowed to post recognizances and trials were postponed. Both those indicted and witnesses failed to appear and frequently forfeited their recognizances. Although juries indicted 26 different men, only six came to trial and only four were convicted. In four key cases, including a second indictment against Ganson, Soteriori were filed to remove the cases from the county courts. Masons sat on the Genesee grand juries of 1826-1827, including five of six foremen. Particularly outrageous to the public was the appointment of Dr. Samuel S. Butler, a Royal Archmason, as foreman of the February 1827 Sessions Grand Jury. Butler had been implicated as a messenger between Ganson and the master of Batavia Lodge on the day of Miller's arrest, and the April 1827 Oyer and Terminer Grand Jury indicted him for conspiracy. Ganson's son John, also a Mason, sat on the June 1827 Sessions Jury, while his son-in-law, not a Mason, was a member of the next Oyer and Terminer Jury. That jury also included an officer of the Batavia Lodge, another man implicated in the plot, Morgan's former Masonic employer and the editor of the Batavia Times, later indicted for libel against the anti-Masonic leaders. Two of the Masons indicted later served on grand juries dealing with other Morgan cases. To the public eye, Genesee County court officials perhaps appeared equally partial. Five of seven judges presiding at various times were Masons, although one, Robert Earl, seceded and joined the anti-Masonic leadership. District Attorney Levi Rumsey, while not himself a Mason, was a brother of one of Olive Branch's founders and a son-in-law of Ephraim Towner, prominent Batavia Mason whose brother Benjamin was among those indicted for conspiracy. The Genesee County Morgan cases reveal still another aspect of militants by loyal Masons. Two of the Masonic jury foremen, Mills Averill and Jonathan K. Barlow, were expelled from Olive Branch Lodge 215 in October 1827 after allegedly saying that the time had gone by when masonry was of any use to society. For accusing the lodge in general of being concerned in the abduction of Morgan, for charging the brethren with perjury in the case of Morgan, the same lodge expelled still another former jury member in 1829. Militant masonry in Genesee County held no room for disagreement. In 1826, December, 
The Monroe County Sheriff, James Seymour, a Mason, assembled a grand jury with a Mason as foreman. Although the jury included protesters against the outrages who would become anti-Masons, it indicted no one, mainly because so many witnesses who were Masons refused to testify. A prolonged abuse of office took place in Niagara County, where the sheriff, Eli Bruce, was convicted for helping to kidnap Morgan and sent to the county jail. For months, Bruce had warded off prosecution by assembling grand juries packed with Masons. He reportedly sat with and guided one such jury, which sent a memorial to Governor Clinton testifying to Bruce's spotless character. Such incidents led to anti-Masonic demands for changes in the method of jury selections. The demand that Masons be barred from serving on juries at any time also became a standard part of the anti-Masonic program everywhere. As such, it turned into a wish to deny civil rights, yet its practical origins in western New York can be understood if not condoned. In Ontario County, the legal system responded to the kidnapping, though with mixed results. Four alleged abductors were indicted in November and tried in January at Kenandauga. A battery of prestigious lawyers appeared for the defense, typical of what one special counsel later called the formidable array of able and experienced counsel in all these causes. Three of the four defendants soon stunned the court by pleading guilty to conspiracy to kidnap, claiming no knowledge of Morgan's fate after completing their small part in the project. Thus, almost no information emerged, and the belief quickly spread that a rap had been taken to cut off testimony which might incriminate others. Upwards of 200 witnesses reportedly had assembled, some from 100 miles away. As they and the many spectators returned home through a snow-buried country, they broadcast the disturbing outcome of the trial more effectively than any newspapers. Indeed, because of what they termed the silence of the public press about Morgan, the proto-anti-Masonic collection of independent committees known as the Lewiston Convention began to publish reports of their investigations. In February 1827, another Ontario trial resulted in the acquittal of several men accused of falsely imprisoning Morgan. Other acquittals came later in the year. Indeed, no important convictions came again until Eli Bruce finally came to trial in August of 1828. Meanwhile, suspected abductors and witnesses fled the area or disappeared. Some, like Ganson and Sheriff Thompson, died in distant parts. As Weed later remarked, acquittals did not relieve public skepticism, but rather served to implicate the Masonic fraternity more deeply in the public mind. During late 1826 and early 1827, state authorities, like the courts, seemed to give the protesters an inadequate hearing. The legislature did respond positively to the public outcry over the light sentences meted out at Kenandauga and Batavia, and over the representation of Masons on grand juries. On April 16, 1827, Governor Clinton signed legislation stiffening the kidnapping laws and stripping sheriffs of the power to summon grand jurors. Henceforth, kidnapping would be a felony punishable by 3 to 14 years at hard labor, and town supervisors would prepare jury lists. Meanwhile, Clinton, a Mason, had inquired of Canadian officials concerning Morgan and issued three proclamations offering a reward for information leading to Morgan or to his alleged murderers. In March 1827, he raised the reward to $1,000, calling Morgan's abduction an act of unprecedented violence. A special legislative committee chaired by Francis Granger of Ontario, later an anti-Masonic leader, recommended on April 11th that the legislature empower Clinton to offer rewards of $5,000 for Morgan and for his assumed murderers, 
and that it appoint a joint legislative committee to visit the seven western counties and investigate the outrages. While proponents of these resolutions did not mention masonry, the first legislator to speak against them identified himself as a mason and deplored any actions catering to the hysteria against masonry. The assembly defeated the resolutions overwhelmingly. Legislative action on the kidnapping question and on the summoning of jurors could not, of course, be enforced retroactively. To many observers, the Assembly's failure to endorse the Granger resolutions loomed larger and seemed to thwart a promising mode of investigation. This, too, fed frustration over the outrages. Thus, protests did not leap full-blown from the kidnapping to beliefs about satanic conspiracies. No single incident and no imaginary conspiracy triggered paranoia. While some wholesale blasts against masonry as such emerged during the first weeks of protest, no uniform pattern developed and many remonstrators showed restraint. David Miller and his Batavia Republican advocate, however, jumped at the chance to lead a crusade. At first, the advocate blamed its rival, the People's Press, for the outrages and spoke of a few worthless members of a useless institution made to bend to the purposes of the abandoned and unprincipled. Yet, as early as September 18th, Miller distributed a handbill expressing fears that Captain William Morgan had been assassinated and launched an attack on masonry. Although Miller began by detailing instances of outrage, he shifted to the evil nature of masonry as an institution. Thus, the advocate became the fountainhead of anti-masonry, painting the vulgar Morgan as a paragon of virtue and masonry as becoming as dangerous to individual rights and social liberties as the Spanish Inquisition ever was in the zenith of its baleful power. By October, Miller was working to bring to pass his prediction that in the violences inflicted on Morgan shall masonry be entombed. Some citizens' meetings, too, moved to positions of antagonism to masonry equaling Miller's, Yet most protests from September through December 1826 were moderate. Indeed, the evidence suggests that denunciation of masonry was not inevitable. The protest meeting in Batavia on September 25th included influential community leaders from all political factions and acted discreetly. The meeting listened to addresses, resolutions, and nine affidavits from abduction witnesses, material which formed the basic information for meetings elsewhere. The prostitution of law with help from law officers especially alarmed the citizens. Shocking, too, was evidence that some neighbors had prior knowledge of lawbreaking and that expressions of apathy or even satisfaction with outrages had come from those of whom we had hoped better things. The Batavians' concern for the legal system pervaded their response. In a government of laws, we can only look to the law for protection. Our Bill of Rights has declared that no person of what state or condition soever shall be taken or imprisoned or put to death without being brought to answer by due process of law. This assertion of our rights is but a miserable mockery if the humblest citizen may even under the pretended sanction of legal authority be violently abducted from his friends and secretly imprisoned beyond the aid of legal redress. The Batavians complained of an organized and disciplined mob of daring banditti, a secret clan, and mentioned a lodge room having been used to incarcerate a citizen, but only thus indirectly referred to masonry. Moderation also prevailed among the citizens of Rochester. On December 14th, protesters there chose a committee of inquiry headed by nonpartisan influentials, including several masons. They condemned high-handed violence and the cool, deliberate, and concerted villainy against Morgan, especially the abuse of legal process. 
They also disclaimed any sentiments of hostility to the fraternity of Masons as a body. Yet, by early 1827, protests frequently denounced Masonry per se as an evil institution inherently responsible for the outrages. This absolutist trend reflected the remonstrator's reaction to Masonic arrogance and disdain for remorse. Many Masons apparently responded to inquiries with silence, ridicule, or threats. Some hinted that Masons were invulnerable. A few alluded to a violent end for Morgan or quipped that Morgan got what he deserved. Many of these remarks no doubt issued from attention seekers, but protesters seized indiscriminately on all of them as proof of Masonry's corruptions. Recalcitrant Masons and their allies thus fostered the absolutist spirit. Martin Van Buren, soon a political foe of anti-Masonry, understood the stimulus hardliners gave to remonstrance. When one of his party's editors criticized protesters during 1827, Van Buren exhorted him to let the Morgan affair alone. He confessed himself heartsick at such reckless indiscretion, running in the face of so irresistible a current of public feeling in the western counties. Inflamed feelings might lead to excess unless allowed to exhaust themselves. Opposition, and more especially ridicule, but add fuel to the flames. Van Buren feared the political potential of protest. As early as October 7, 1826, radicals declared that no person should be supported for any office, whatever, who acknowledges an authority superior to the laws of our country. Though the Batavia and Rochester meetings avoided politics, Morgan affected elections to some degree, even in November 1826. The political drift of protest originated largely in reaction to Mason's recalcitrance. The objectors demanded that any fraternity member seeking office give a far more reasonable account of what happened to Morgan, or that Masonic candidates not countenance the outrages in any way. In time, these demands stiffened. By February and March, as local elections approached, protesters announced they would not vote for Masons, not renouncing Masonry. Anti-Masons later claimed that in May 1827, a Rochester Village election caused the Morgan committees to turn to politics. The defeat of the habitually elected treasurer, a Morgan committeeman, suggested a secret scheme of Masonic revenge. But demands for political action had surfaced before this throughout rural towns in Monroe and other counties. The grassroots turn to the ballot box was already underway as a logical consequence of the conflict between remonstrators and Masons. The change in protest emerged fully by June 25, 1827, at a meeting in Batavia different from that on the previous September. It coincided with a Masonic celebration of St. John's Day, and while uniformed Masons and their ladies paraded, sang, and feasted, an ordinary but larger group met to denounce the outrages and cover-up. The protesters held that any men bound by the obligations of a secret society were unfit to be rulers of a free people, and that they would support no Masons for office. They recommended a convention of delegates from the western counties to adopt measures for future safety. Thus, during the summer of 1827, the politics of protest moved forward, and the desire to preserve our civil and political rights from the encroachments of secret associations focused on the coming fall elections. By September, political anti-Masonry had emerged. In Monroe County, Thurlow Weed and his associates put forward a Republican anti-Masonic ticket, also called the People's Ticket. For state legislator. These politicians now employed rhetoric giving no quarter to masonry. The fraternity was evil, it had committed murder and obstructed justice. Its oaths, secrecy, wealth, and power had frustrated the law. 
its evil was ubiquitous. Every man's experience can furnish instances of Masonic interference with almost all the transactions of life. Masonry was bloody, unrepublican, monarchical, blasphemous, a relic of barbarism. We aim, therefore, at its annihilation. While Masonic militants provoked denunciation and political reprisal, there were other responses by the craft. Influential moderates, for example, often acted with the ambivalence of men caught between conflicting loyalties. Thurlow Weed speculated later in the beginning Masons outside of the conspiracy might have reduced excitement with different actions. Many moderate, respected Masons served on the first Morgan committees or had close personal, business, or political ties with men who did. Yet the experience of Rochester's committee was revealing. It discovered that Masonic members relayed confidential discussions to the Rochester Lodges. After confrontation, the Masons and committee parted. The failure of Masonic moderates to restrain left the field to seceders and militants, both of whose actions escalated the protest. At first, Masonic responses were mixed. Some lodges issued disclaimers of any connection with Morgan. Many remained silent, or, like the Rochester Lodge, played a double game. Most eventually suspended operations. In Genesee County, for example, 15 of 16 lodges suspended business. Yet the one survivor, Olive Branch of Bethany, not only kept its charter, but published its intention of doing so in the newspapers. Masonic intransigence surfaced following the Grand Chapter's February meeting. With 110 subordinate Royal Arch Chapters present, the Grand Chapter issued what William Stone called a tame and spiritless disclaimer of alleged violations committed under Masonic pretenses. Yet present in full communion, said Stone, and passing on this very resolution, were some of the very conspirators themselves. A friend who attended told Stone that a proposal to offer a $1,000 reward for the murderers had been rejected and Hot Spurs pushed through a $1,000 grant to charity to aid the Western sufferers, that is, men being prosecuted for the crimes. Masons soon had unleashed a counteroffensive. Masonic newspapers were founded to turn opinion against protest by praising Masonry's purity and especially by discrediting its critics. During March, April, and May, said we, there was a popular reaction, not so much in favor of Masonry as against anti-Masonry. Masons set afloat rumors causing confusion and uncertainty. Their papers, led by the Albany American Masonic Record, denounced anti-Masonry with a fury equal to that of any backcountry anti-Masonic fundamentalist. At the Grand Lodge in Albany in June, William Stone met a storm of anger from old associates infuriated by his editorials critical of Masons involved in crimes. The Lodge would not expel Stone, but voted $100 to Eli Bruce to sustain him against persecutions. Although Governor Clinton was about to dismiss Bruce as sheriffs, Masons across the state continued to donate money for his defense. As protesters moved to total denunciation, Masonry's militant corps initiated its own total war against any backsliding from, criticism of, or threat to their fraternity. We have not tried to explain anti-Masonry in terms of its social correlates. Some men and women were more disposed than others toward protest, and eventually anti-Masonry, just as men from certain social groups were more likely to become Masons. A challenge still confronts historical sociology, namely the need for systemic analysis of anti-Masonry and Masonry. But if the immediate causes of anti-Masonry have been recovered here, then the analysis of structural causes stands a better chance of being grounded in its historical context. The origins of anti-Masonry cannot be explained as an irrational outburst. 
The protest of 1826-1827 is an exemplary case study of the gestation of a movement whose beliefs sprang initially from concrete experience. While anti-Masonry eventually ran to excesses and recruited opportunists, fanatics, and diverse exotics, one must not read later features back into the genesis of protest and group conflict. The Morgan episode, and especially its aftermath in the courtrooms of Western New York, need to be placed at the beginning of anti-Masonry as shaping its influences. More broadly, the protest should be seen in the context of Republican ideology fashioned by American revolutionaries and their successors. Republicanism provided the vocabulary of protest. It conditioned the fear that equality before the law, a central tenet of Republicanism, was threatened by a secret society's ability to cover up dark deeds and to thwart justice. From that sprang the belief that Masonry's behavior grossly contradicted Republican virtue. During the first trial at Canandaugua, Judge Enos Throop, though soon to be a bucktail governor and enemy of anti-Masonry, delivered a speech which became a sacred text of anti-Masonry. Throop praised the people's spontaneous vigilance in defending the laws and their strong feeling of virtuous indignation. The court rejoices to witness it, to be made sure that a citizen's person cannot be invaded by lawless violence without its being felt by every individual in the community. It is a blessed spirit, and we do hope that it will not subside, that it will be accompanied by a ceaseless vigilance, until every actor in this profligate conspiracy is hunted from his hiding place and brought before the tribunals of the county to receive the punishment merited by his crime. We think we see in this public sensation the spirit which brought us into existence as a nation. End quote. This accorded with the protesters' self-image. They saw themselves obeying the imperatives of aroused republicanism. Protest thus resulted from overlapping sequences of action and reaction. Masonic vigilantism initially opened the way to polarization over Masonry. From Morgan's vanishing through early 1827, Masonic militants reacted to public concern with increasing defiance. What Weed called the Masons' high posture led to escalation of protest and group conflict. Masonic zealots refused to acknowledge wrongdoing. They would not do penance. On the contrary, they showed contempt for those demanding it, and as timid members stayed home and others turned renegade, a militant corps hung together and by winter's end had opened a counteroffensive to eliminate the enemy as a moral and political force. Prolonged Masonic efforts to conceal information about Morgan created gaps in public knowledge of the affair, allowing free reign to imagination among common-sense Republicans. Ignorance indeed bred fear, anxiety, and eventually hostility to Masonry as months of inquests and trials proceeded. Information revealed proved sufficient to trigger further questioning, it was insufficient to quiet many concerned citizens. The political potential of the outrages surfaced as early as November 1826, and by September 1827, political anti-Masonry was well launched. Opportunism became a part of anti-Masonic politics as naturally as it has insinuated itself into all elements of politics. But adhering Masons played into the hands of entrepreneurs and gave marginal men such as David Miller audiences they otherwise never would have had. The view of Masons as scapegoats is misleading in explaining the genesis of protest. Their actions must be seen in the context of the failure of social controls and of the protesters' impatience. Social restraints did not defuse the controversy, in part because of the Masons' influence and power. The authorities did not appear to be differentiated from Masonry, either in reality or especially in the protesters' eyes. 
Incipient anti-Masons lost patience too quickly with normal imperfections in courts and newspapers. It is also true that agencies of social control did not act promptly enough to give a hearing to protest. Neither local nor state officials reacted with the sense of urgency that might have placated the aroused. Instead, authorities seemed to take sides, and outraged Westerners did not retain confidence in the forces of law and order. The latter did not lift the issues from the hands of the aggrieved groups and consider these issues in setting apart from the heat of emotional commitment to generalized beliefs. Although anti-Masonic demands escalated later, early goals were defined very much by the conflict situation. Political anti-Masonry, at its inception, was a contest for control of the local administration of justice. None of this should be interpreted as an attempt to explain away anti-Masonry's later excesses. As an absolutist spirit grew and as other social cleavages suffused the original conflicts, anti-Masonic charges of secret evil doing reached cosmic proportions, outrunning the factual limits set by the New York outrages. But the protest to extremism as it came into existence has been exaggerated while Masonry's has escaped notice. Both the emergence of total denunciation and political reprisal bore some rational relation to actual vigilantism, conspiracy, and cover-up. Anti-Masonry began as a protest against the systematic breaking of the rules of the game, and throughout incubation, it was Republican and norm-restoring. After it mobilized as movement and party, it acquired additional goals and expressed a range of ideological tendencies stretching from radical to reactionary. Initially, however, the issue posed by the breakers of the law west of Cayuga Bridge was central to liberal republicanism, equality before the law. Anti-Masonic cohorts later expressed a desire for equality of opportunity, combined with resentment of high status and concentrated wealth. Some early protesters, such as Miller, may have been classic cases of resentment politics. The religious opponents of Masonry, too, lost little time in joining the protest, and their worst fears of Masonry's inherent danger to religion seemed confirmed. To the evangelical, the issues posed by Masonry's character, as revealed in the outrages, sounded a trumpet call to crusade. But the first protesters, whatever their other motives, sought to maintain a basic and ingrained norm of Republican society. Whatever the ambiguity of its public standing in 1826, Masonry need not have raised the question of its own existence. The confrontation may have been likely, it was not inevitable, but the challenge to republicanism, even though many Masons, as good Republicans, did not see it or valued more their freedom to associate, combined with the hostility of its natural enemies, gave life to the call for Masonry's total abolition. After coexisting uneasily with American sectarian Protestantism, Masonry's experience at the close of the early national period defined the boundaries of sub-community existence in liberal Republican political culture. So, that's the end of the article. There are 85, 85 notes on this article that reference a lot of other things that I didn't get into and read. Um, but it references a lot of books, and there's just a lot of other information in here that is talked about. Uh, where some of the information came from, as noted, um, even some definitions. And anyways, it's definitely worth checking out the link, going in if you're interested, if you really want to get a little more history on this, and reading the entire article, and then also looking up some of the, uh, the reference material. So thanks, hope you stuck with it, have a great day, and we'll see you on the next one.
Thank you for listening. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a comment. We enjoy hearing from our listeners. If you really like what you heard, share this podcast with your friends and lodge members. Visit us online at solomonstaircase.org.